You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Before the show, I want to take a moment to wish all my listeners and patrons happy holidays and season's greetings. More specifically, I'd like to thank a few new patrons who pledged support while I was on hiatus. Thanks so much, Vladislav, Renda, Thomas, and Julia. Your support and the support of all my patrons has been so very encouraging. If you want to support the podcast, visit patreon.com slash historicalblindness. For as little as a dollar a month, you get access to ad-free episodes and teasers. At higher tiers, you can get early access to episodes and electronic or signed hard copies of my novel. Patrons have also been known to get the occasional free sticker and magnet. And recently I produced a patron-exclusive mini-sode. I hope to get on something resembling a schedule with patron-exclusive content this upcoming year. So check out the Patreon and consider supporting your favorite show. If every listener pledged at the lowest tier, I might be able to afford to teach less and produce more content. This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule, whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers. And most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change and when should we start building our rafts? Hello everyone, you may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. On to the show. Welcome to a special holiday edition of Historical Blindness, the Odd Past podcast. I'm Nathaniel Lloyd, and I'll be your secret Santa this year. Oops, I shouldn't have told you that. In this episode, I'll be exploring the obscure history behind my favorite holiday, which as it turns out is stuffed like a stocking with myths. I love Christmas, the family time, the music, the classic movies, the decorations, the aroma of evergreen trees and spiced apple, the taste of gingerbread with my coffee and nutmeg in my eggnog. I am not, however, much of a churchgoer or man of faith. Therefore, I have some ambivalence about this holiday, which is so often and heatedly defended as a Christian tradition. 
We must remember the reason for the season, and we must keep Christ in Christmas, or so many remind us while lamenting a culture that does not encourage people to keep the nativity scene at the forefront of all thoughts throughout December. Recently, I saw an image being posted on social media with these statements, quote, Christmas is based on a pagan holiday. Jesus wasn't born in December. Christmas trees are a heathen tradition, end quote. And of course, this wasn't the first time I'd heard these claims, being something of a know-it-all and a pedant, who is only too happy to challenge preconceived notions about both history and religion, I have been known to make such statements myself. But of course, as I have learned in making this show, critical thought challenges all preconceived notions, not only the ones that you dislike and want to dispel. The claims of the agnostic, the atheist, and the anti-religious must be examined just as skeptically and fairly as any assertions made by the religious. So, this holiday season, I've set out to explore the veracity of these claims and get to the bottom of just how pagan or Christian are Christmas's origins and traditions. Joining me on this journey is Brian Earle of my favorite Christmas podcast, Christmas Past. Throughout the holidays, Brian reaches peak nostalgia as he explores all the elements that make Christmas great and shares a wealth of memories that will keep you warm during the season. Check out his show and you just might hear yours truly sharing a Christmas memory this year. Thanks for joining me, Brian. Hi, Nathaniel. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to join your Christmas celebration. And thank you, listeners, for joining us for A Very Historically Blind Christmas. Perhaps the first assertion we should examine is that Jesus Christ was not born on December 25th, as this is a frequent point used to undermine the entire Christian basis of the holiday. In truth, we don't know when Jesus was born. The two Gospels that depict the Nativity, Matthew and Luke, fail to record a birth date or even to identify the month or the season of his birth. We can, however, make some judgments based on details that are included. Both Gospels indicate vaguely that the story of the Nativity took place during the reign of King Herod the Great, King of Judea. But there are inconsistencies. Matthew says the Christ child was born during his reign and goes on to tell the story of Herod's massacre of the innocents. But Luke actually only mentions the reign of Herod as being the time when an angel foretold of the birth of John the Baptist and implies a significant passage of time between that and Mary's angelic visitation. Rather, Luke explicitly places Christ's birth during the census of Quirinius, taken during the imposition of Roman rule, for which male landowners were required to return to their ancestral homes and be counted. Thus, a problem arises with the timeline as this census took place a decade after Herod's death, which would make the two nativity narratives entirely contradictory. Moreover, it would not make sense for Joseph to take Mary on his journey 
while she was quote-unquote great with child, if she need not be counted for the census, when she could instead remain in the comfort of their home on whatever land Joseph presumably owned. And one detail stands out from Luke as evidence that whatever the month of Christ's birth, it couldn't be December. This being the verse that states there were shepherds watching over their flocks in the fields at night when Mary delivered the child. This would seem to place his birth during a warmer time of year. However, if these inconsistencies tell us anything, it is that we should not be looking to Matthew and Luke as accurate records of the past. The most likely explanation for all of these discrepancies is that writing about events at a 70 to 80 year remove, the authors simply got things wrong or invented details to flesh out their stories. So, why, a few hundred years later, did the church settle on December 25th as the Feast of the Nativity? Some have claimed that it was a simple matter of doing the math, that December 25th falls nine months after March 25th, when the Feast of the Annunciation of the Blessed Virgin Mary is observed, celebrating Christ's Immaculate Conception. One might then reasonably ask how they determined March 25th to be the anniversary of the Annunciation, and the answer raises the odd notion that martyrs are predestined to be martyred on the anniversary of their conceptions. But there may be a simpler explanation. Records of the first Feast of the Nativity predate the first Feast of the Annunciation by about 100 years. So if simple math determined these dates, then if anything, that math was done in reverse, counting backward nine months from December 25th to be certain the date of the Annunciation lined up with the chosen date of the Nativity. So the question remains, why choose December 25th? Our answer may indeed lie in pagan and secular traditions in the form of midwinter feasts and festivals that were common and popular in the Roman Empire during the time when Christianity was only just establishing its own traditions. Here's Brian Earle of Christmas Past with more. The first record we have showing December 25th as the date of Christ's birth comes from a calendar produced in Rome in 354 CE, an era when Christianity was vying for ascendancy against various pagan traditions. There's a quotation from a supposedly 4th century scribe called Scriptus Cyrus that appeared as an annotation on another work, and it clearly makes the claim that the Christian church simply adopted pagan traditions for its own purposes. Quote, It was a custom of the pagans to celebrate on the same December 25th the birthday of the sun, at which they kindled lights in token of festivity. Accordingly, when the church authorities perceived that the Christians had a leaning to this festival, they took counsel and resolved that the true nativity should be solemnized on that day." End quote. This is the heart of the contention that the Christmas we know is simply a pagan celebration appropriated by Christianity out of either convenience or for the purpose of asserting religious dominance, which of course it succeeded in doing. The quote, though, is suspect. The annotation actually appeared on an 18th century edition of a 12th century work, and the name Scriptus Cyrus only means a Syrian writer. Therefore, it doesn't appear to be a claim made in the 4th century, but rather one made some 800 years later by an unknown writer. 
still we may ask whether or not it's true. What was the festival of the birthday of the sun? This can easily be recognized as Dies Natalis Solus Invicti, or the birthday of the unconquered sun, a civil holiday timed to coincide with the winter solstice to honor the symbolic rebirth of the sun as the days began once more to lengthen and the light therefore was seen to overcome the darkness. This festival was associated with the cult of the unconquered sun or Sol Invictus, a sun god that held a place of honor as a principal deity in the Roman Empire. But it is the roots of Sol Invictus in far older Mithraic traditions that raise further questions about how pagan influences have defined Christianity. Stop me if you've heard this before. Pretty much everything about Christ and Christianity is actually derived from Mithraism and its central figure, Mithra. Born to a virgin on December 25th, Mithra too was visited by shepherds. In his life, he traveled and taught and performed great miracles, gathering 12 followers before he sacrificed himself and ascended to heaven. Remembered as a Messiah, his followers, who were baptized and observed a Eucharistic ritual meal, worshipped him on a day set aside as sacred, Sunday. Listening to this litany of similarities and knowing that Mithraism preceded Christianity by hundreds of years, many have been led to believe that Christianity was little more than a knockoff religion repackaging the Mithra narrative. Some suggest Jesus may have been an initiate of the Mithraic mysteries and that his death and resurrection was nothing more than a reenactment of Mithra's rebirth. Others go further and propose, without evidence, that there may not have been a real Jesus as such, that his story was merely a retelling of Mithra's. Are you still with me? Have you shut off the episode or skipped to another Christmas podcast? If you're still listening, the truth of the matter seems to lie somewhere in between the two extremes. Certainly Mithraic traditions predated Christianity. Indeed, they predated the Roman Empire. Long before his entrance into the Western world, the figure of Mithra appeared in India and Persia as Mitra, a marshal of peoples and binder of men in covenants and contracts. Even in these earliest of iterations, he is associated with the sun. First, as a kind of intercessor, mediating between the heavens and the earth, ensuring the rising of the sun and thus the success of agricultural endeavors. As the figure made his way into Persia and became Mithra, and thereafter reached the west and became Mithras, he developed more martial qualities, and indeed, his cult was eventually widely spread by soldiers. His association with the sun also developed to the point that while he was depicted as a man, often killing a bull, he was also depicted as the very sun itself. Aside from any similarities, there are myriad pronounced differences from Christianity. And some have even argued, with no real support, that rather than Christianity borrowing from Mithraism during the time of their competition for devotees, it was actually Mithraism that modeled itself after Christianity. While this is not well supported, there is at least the possibility of it being true. 
for most of the similarities that are cited relate to the later Roman Mithraic traditions that developed contemporary to Christianity. As we take a brief break from the episode, I'd like to take this opportunity to remind you that supporters of my Patreon get exclusive access to an ad-free stream of the show. So if you want to get on with each episode without interruption, head on over and pledge a monthly donation of as little as $1 to get the ad-free RSS feed, which can be pasted into most podcast apps. All patrons also get teasers in their feeds during off weeks. And patrons at higher levels get early access to all episodes, among other perks. I'd love to be able to offer the show with no ads, but in order to build a future for the show, that means freeing up my time to concentrate more on the podcast, which means seeking patronage and advertising. I appreciate all of you listening and supporting the show by rating, reviewing, spreading the word, and pledging your support. This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule, whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers, and most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. The question of who plagiarized whom, if the syncretism of religious traditions can even be called plagiarism, becomes moot, however, if it turns out that the similarities themselves aren't actually there. 
For example, the date December 25th, which I've already argued is unsupported as the birth date of Christ, may not actually have been universally accepted as Mithra's birth date either. As archaeological evidence indicates, Mithra and Saul Invictus may have been considered separate deities, perhaps closely connected or even a dualistic manifestation of one divine being, but certainly possessing their own identities. As for the virgin birth, some versions of the Persian Mithra were born to a virgin water goddess called Anahita, conceived either by the quote-unquote milky fountain of immortality or by some kind of incestuous relationship between the two of them that simply doesn't make sense in a purely chronological chicken-before-the-egg way. However, the Roman Mithras was said to have sprung fully formed from a rock, witnessed by two torchbearers that have somehow been distorted into shepherds for the purpose of forcing the comparison to the nativity. And while it is true that some ancient versions of the nativity have Christ born in a cave, none of them have him born of stone. Moreover, Mithra was never said to be a man traveling the land and imparting his wisdom, as was Christ. And while there are plenty of works of art in Mithraic temples that have been construed by scholars as depicting Mithra performing some wonder or another, there are no testimonial stories of him performing such miraculous works, as we have of Christ. Some of that art also portrays Mithra surrounded by twelve other figures, but these weren't disciples or even men. They were the signs of the zodiac. Meanwhile, their supposed Eucharist was essentially just a ritual meal common in religious ceremonies, comprised of more than just bread and wine and lacking any suggestion of the consumption of Mithra's flesh and blood, which would of course make it not Eucharistic at all. Indeed, it does appear that the Mithraic mystery cult engaged in ceremonial washings and baptism, and Mithra did have Sunday, the day named for the unconquered sun, set aside for him. But as can be seen, the lion's share of these claims are either demonstrably false or dubious. Likewise, doubt can be cast upon the assertion that Christmas trees were a heathen tradition. Like many others, I have smugly pointed to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 10, verse 3, to suggest that Christians were hypocrites for putting up and decorating a Christmas tree. It reads, quote, Thus saith the Lord, Learn not the way of the heathen, and be not dismayed at the signs of heaven, for the heathen are dismayed at them. For the customs of the people are vain. For one cutteth a tree out of the forest, the work of the hands of the workmen, with the axe. They deck it with silver and with gold. They fasten it with nails and with hammers, that it move not. End quote. How upsetting these lines can be to a God-fearing Christian at Christmas time. And as Jeremiah was likely composed hundreds of years before the birth of Christ, it would seem to be a clear-cut case of pagan traditions incorporated into Christmas. But in fairness, with the context of the following verses, 
it is clear that Jeremiah is talking about the creation of idols carved from the wood of trees and then covered in precious metals. And what we know of the history of Christmas trees does not support an origin so far back in antiquity. Here again is Brian Earle with more. The tradition of decorating homes and churches with greenery in the winter has a long history, and it is closely connected with other traditions in other seasonal festivals, such as the lighting of candles, as it observes the same theme of light, warmth, and life persisting amid the darkness and the cold and the death present all around us in the winter. In London, as early as 1444, it is recorded that a proto-Christmas tree was erected outdoors in the form of a maypole that had been adorned with ivy and sprigs of holly. So we do indeed see a secular basis for this tradition, but for true Christmas trees we must look to Germany, where in that same century two legends grew. One told of St. Boniface who foiled a pagan human sacrifice to Thor by felling the oak tree on which it was to take place and putting up a fir in its stead, the evergreen serving as a metaphor for eternal life through Christ. The other legend told of an apple tree miraculously blooming on Christmas Eve, a miracle that inspired others to claim they also witnessed trees inexplicably flowering on Christmas. These stories may also have been inspired by the so-called paradise plays that were popular on Christmas Eve, the plays dramatized the events of the Garden of Eden in Genesis, with an evergreen tree standing in for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and apples tied to its branches to represent the forbidden fruit. Imagine that for a moment. Isn't it the perfect precursor to the Christmas trees of today, festooned with red sparkling bulbs? The people eventually stopped putting on their paradise plays, but they kept the decorated trees, displaying them in public squares and eventually bringing them into the home. The practice became so popular that some municipalities actually passed ordinances limiting the chopping of trees and the number of trees people could have in their houses. And this tradition, in which again we may see pagan, secular, and Christian influences, spread from Germany the world over. So it's not such a cut-and-dry affair as some loudmouth atheists might present it. Yes, elements of Christmas may have derived from Mithraic traditions, but clearly some prominent mainstays, the Nativity narrative, the Christmas tree, have decidedly Christian origins. And if the theme at the heart of the evergreen tree being displayed in the dead of winter owes something to more ancient and non-Christian traditions, in the form of decorating with greenery, it shouldn't come as too much of a surprise. The same can be said of the Mithraic celebration of Dies Natalis Solus Invicti, for neither was theirs the first midwinter celebration to mark the solstice, or solstitium, when the sun stood still. For an even more ancient forerunner, we must look to the celebration of Saturnalia in primitive Rome. Since at least the first century, and likely even earlier, a festival was held by farmers to observe the conclusion of the planting season. Starting as a two-day event honoring the god Saturn, the sower of seeds, as its popularity grew with the Roman Empire, it expanded, 
and like the advent, began earlier in the month and concluded in late December, near the solstice. Saturnalia appears to be the origin of the season's merrymaking, for it was the time of great feasts, lavish banquets, when social order was relaxed. In fact, the excesses of Saturnalia were so great that the notoriously extravagant and libertine Emperor Caligula even felt it needed to be reined in. So there appears to be a long and storied history to our Christmas time wassailing and inebriety. Other connections include, of course, decorating buildings with greenery, lighting candles, and even giving gifts, usually of candles, wax dolls, and caged birds. And Saturnalia is not alone as a precursor to Christmas, or a contemporary midwinter festival with similar elements to Christmas. Other secular and pagan festivities include the Collins, a civic celebration of the new year during which people feasted, decorated buildings with greenery, gave gifts, and even enjoyed the spectacle of parades. Then there is the decidedly Christmas Germanic celebration of Yule, an ancient name for the month of January that was synonymous with festivities. This celebration appears to have been related to Norse mythology as the Yule father, Odin, was said during this time to lead an army of the dead on a hunt, riding across the sky on an eight-legged horse. A more realistic but no less fun explanation is that Yule marked the end of harvest and therefore the beginning of the season for brewing beer, and so was a time for carousal, when in addition to feasting and burning a Yule log in the hearth, many were known to quote-unquote drink Yule. So, what we are talking about here is not plagiarism, as I so clumsily put it before, but a well-known phenomenon known as syncretism, defined by the Oxford English Dictionary as the amalgamation or attempted amalgamation of different religions, cultures, or schools of thought. If Christmas, the Christian Christ Mass, blended purposely or organically with religious and cultural forms that preceded it, it is nothing that all its predecessors had not already done. As the Kalends grew in prominence, they adopted the traditions of Saturnalia. And even if we do not know the means of their transmission to other regions, we certainly see their similarities in the Yule festivities as well. And of course, we see them further appropriated by the Mithraic cult of Saul Invictus. And Mithraism is a serial offender in this regard. It has been called Quote, wildly syncretistic, a bizarre mixture of primitive and more advanced cultural elements. End quote. In fact, some suggest that Mithraism's success in spreading so far across the ancient world is owed specifically to the fact that people of other cultures, when exposed to his myth, were easily able to conflate him with other deities, solar and otherwise. He was identified with the Babylonian Shamash and Marduk as well as the Mesopotamian Bel, and then his cult folded in nicely with that of the Roman sun god Saul Invictus. Then we have Christianity, which shared prominent commonalities with other so-called mystery religions, including the celebration of God's birth, death, rebirth, and ascension, and an emphasis 
on initiation in the form of baptism, and for a long time, secrecy using the ichthus or Christ fish as a kind of secret password or signal. Should anyone be surprised then that in the melting pot of religion that was Rome, some blending took place? And should Christians be defensive at the suggestion or deny its truth? The answer to both should be no, in my opinion. If anything, a better understanding of the robust and many-faceted history of Christmas traditions just shows that this most wonderful of holidays belongs to Christian and non-Christian alike, that all of us can see in it a history and a theme of great value, the bravery of making light in the darkest time of the year, the hope of renewal, of the return of the sunshine and life springing forth again from a cold earth, a belief in resurrection in every sense. So rather than quibble over how each tradition started, instead of mocking others for what they see and value in the holiday, let us all take what merriment we can from it and kindle a fire of fellow feeling in every breast. Merry Christmas to all. Thank you for listening to this special holiday edition of Historical Blindness. You can find the attribution for all the music on this episode in the show notes. For a great book on the history of all things Christmas, get yourself a copy of Christmas, A Biography by Judith Flanders. I'll put up a link on the website's episode reading list. I'd like to thank Brian Earle for helping me out on this episode. This Christmas, make sure you download and listen to every episode of his podcast, Christmas Past. And visit christmaspast.media for more great content from him. I hope you really enjoyed this Christmas episode. I may try to make them an annual tradition. Please think of it as a Christmas special, the way British television offers a special episode in between its seasons. As for my new season, I hope to return to a regular schedule in January. I've got some great episodes planned, too. If you want to support the show, find me on Patreon. New patrons will be charged for their first donation to get access to the ad-free feed, but I am probably going to keep the campaign on pause until the 1st of February, when hopefully the show will have been back on track for about a month. Otherwise, you can offer me the Christmas gift of giving me a 5-star rating and a nice review on iTunes and following the show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. For the others on your Christmas list, visit historicalblindness.com and go to the store tab to find some historical blindness merchandise that would make great gifts. Then go to the books tab to get you or someone you know a copy of my historical novel about Masonic conspiracy in the 1820s and its influence on the Book of Mormon. Until I return, keep that Yule log burning. The cold and the dark outside your window must be kept at bay.
With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.